Hi, I'm Chris Shaffrey, the president of the AANS, and I want to invite you to Boston for our annual meeting, which is going to be held on April 25th through 29th, 2020. The theme of the meeting is the world of neurosurgery. It's going to be an exciting, informative, compelling meeting, and I strongly encourage you all to attend. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. So today I'm joined by Fred Barker, who's a professor of neurosurgery at the Mass General, which is a Harvard affiliate. Uh, we're very honored to have Fred with us, but um, maybe Fred, I, let me have you introduce yourself to our listeners. And remember, we have a diverse audience. There's medical students, there's probably some patients, there's a lot of residents, a lot of doctors listening in. So tell us about how you came to neurosurgery. Uh, well, actually, I, I never thought I would become a neurosurgeon. We had a family friend who thought I would be, but I always uh, recognized that it was a stupid thing to cut out parts of the brain. And uh, <laughs> it wasn't until um, very late in the game that I realized for complicated reasons that that, that was what I was going to end up doing. You should have been a spine surgeon. No, I, I should have been anything but, but a neurosurgeon, according to my dad, who was a transplant surgeon. Okay. And, of course, you know the part of neurosurgery that a transplant surgeon sees, right? It's, yeah, so maybe you yeah. can tell our audience about that because not everybody knows what that means. Uh, well, organ donors. So my father, uh, by that point in his career, mainly saw neurosurgery as a, as a source of organ donors and uh, told me that it was a very depressing field and that I certainly wouldn't be interested in it once I got to see a little bit more of it. But, um, but it turned out he was wrong, and, and so that's where I ended up. And I, I trained, uh, I did my residency at Mass General, and then uh, three years of fellowship, which was unusual at that time, at Pittsburgh and UCSF, and then went back to Mass General. Oh, wait, how did you do three years of fellowship at two places? Was it a year and a half at each, or two years at one? No, it was a year with Janetta at Pittsburgh, okay. uh, uh, which was a great year. And then uh, the UCSF Neuro-Oncology Fellowship at that time was two years, uh, non-operative. A year okay. in the clinic, and a, then a year in the lab. At the BTRC, the Brain Tumor Research? Right, right, okay. well, under Charlie Wilson, although the, the people I had most contact with were Mike Prados and Suzanne Chang, who were the neuro-oncologists at that time. So how, so you actually worked under Charlie Wilson? Yes, we, uh, me and the other fellow used to go on rounds with Dr. Wilson once a week and, and uh, in his starched white coat and, and see all the patients. So t tell me about Charlie, because Char for those of you who don't know, Charlie Wilson, along with Ben Stein and some of the other greats of neurosurgery, really, they're the, the era right after Harvey Cushing and Dandy and all that. Like they are, they're larger than life, right? Tell us a little story about... about about uh, <laughs> Charlie Wilson. Charlie Wilson. Uh, he, he was, um, well, when I went there as a resident applicant, of course, his um, name was at the top of the donor board in the, in the lobby of the Parnassus building there. He the, himself uh, was a donor. Yeah, he was a gigantic okay. donor. When I got there as a fellow, his name was plastered all over the front of the circulation desk in the library. He must have given a huge amount of money. And the number one admitting diagnosis to the Moffitt Hospital was brain tumor. 
more than MI, more than normal childbirth, more than everything else. Because of him? Because of him. Not because, because there's an epidemic of brain no, tumors in San Francisco. Of, because of him personally. He, wow. His, his force of personality was, uh, I would say, unequaled in anybody that I've known as well as I've known him. I mean, I, I've known some, some neurosurgeons with very forceful personalities, but, but he was just like a force of nature. Now, maybe my greatest honor on my CV is that I, I had the privilege of being one of the last Charlie Wilson visiting professors, Praveen Mumanini, invited me out, and, and I felt completely inadequate because I'd heard about this man. Yeah. He predated Apuzo and all these other mentors, Marty Weiss, all my mentors. I mean, the, the stories on him were legendary. Absolutely. He, he, was, he was really a giant. Um, and I, I don't think you could have such a person again today. I don't, I don't think that that you would uh, make your way to the top anymore if you had that kind of personality. Yeah, what, too demanding, too exacting? Uh, well, he was uncompromising. Um, he, one of the things he told me as a resident applicant was um, that, he, that I must have heard that they fired a lot of people and it wasn't really true and they were only firing one-third of the residents. <laughs> and that, um, those, but they needed to be fired. And those people needed to be <laughs> yeah, fired. And in fact, they shouldn't have been in medicine and most of them were no longer in medicine. And so right? as an applicant, I thought, well, that means there's a one-third chance that I will not even end up as a doctor if I come here. You know, I'll be like, <laughs> like running a car wash or something. But, but, Which um, is not a bad business, by the way. It's no, very profitable. no, it's a great, great. But, um, but I still rank them very highly. Uh, uh, not, uh, I rank them number two, in fact. Um, so you unfortunately match at the Mass General, but uh, still decide to go off to do a fellowship there for two years. Yes, yes. Well, I... I I realized when I finished at Mass General that I really was not well trained for what I wanted to do, which was uh, brain tumors. I, I had not taken a really clear look at that before then, and um, then I, I really recognized that. And I went to Pittsburgh uh, for skull base experience with Shaker, and spent a lot of time with Janetta also, and then uh, then went to really learn. Um, the medical aspect of uh, multimodality treatment of brain tumors and clinical trial design at UCSF. Yeah, and you're and, an expert in, I mean, I know that you're a true expert in, in, in epidemiology and statistics, and we can save that for another podcast, maybe uh, maybe a more, as you say, sonorous podcast, but maybe people are interested in that. Uh, well, I, I, I never took any formal training in those, uh, but I spent a lot of my time both at Pittsburgh and at UCSF learning about those topics and, and those three years totally defined uh, the career that I've had since then. I mean, my career would have been uh, completely different if I hadn't done those three years. So I want to ask you about something, and I, I know it's a little bit not what we originally intended to speak about, but it, it struck me as you were telling a little bit about your father. So my wife has wanted me to do this podcast topic, uh, and she wants me to have Eben Alexander on. Right, and one of the things that's really fundamental about what we do is our segue with death, and death for us different than other doctors, by the way, I think. Right, and um, and you said that your father, you know, he he relied on the brain. I mean, the 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 Harvard document, right? Was right. he at Harvard? Was he a professor at Harvard? No, he was he was uh, at University of Pennsylvania. Okay, and with the oldest medical school in America. Yes, that's yeah. true. Uh, some might dispute it, but it, but it's true. I think. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, and the, and the the among the people who hammered out the Harvard de definitions of brain death were Bill Sweet, who of course was still around, very much around when I was sure. a resident, and uh, and Peter Black, whose PhD was in bioethics, which many people uh, don't recognize. And his wife was an Episcopal minister, right? She was, yes. So um, I mean, we but 
nonetheless, to us, it was it was a set of rules like anybody else, and and uh, we declared patients brain dead for the neurologists and vice versa. We we had to. Uh, had to be somebody from outside the primary treating specialty who made the diagnosis. So we have that segue in, in, in the sense that the definition of death or life can be by brain function. And then we have the other segue, and you do tumors, right? Primarily tumors. Right. And we see that too, and, and whether it be death as a result of the natural disease or after surgery or whatnot, it's, it's a big part of why what we do is so compelling and important, right? Well, yeah, you're playing with... with uh high stakes. I mean, mo- most neurosurgery cases are, there's a lot of money on the table, basically. I mean, and uh, I mean, we're among the only specialties that recognize that it's possible to have a negative quality of life, that you can be alive and that it can be worse than being dead. Being I mean, like vegetative, comatose. Well, uh, we're aware and locked in, for instance. Yeah. Uh, many, many uh, persons would think that that was a really truly negative quality of life. I, I know there are examples to the contrary of people who've lived productive lives under that kind of handicap, but um, m- many of us might not be equal to that if, if we were the ones that it happened to. So you've, you've read The Butterfly and the Diving Bell, of course, right? I, and I've never read you've it. You've never I, read I, it? No, I, I would get too depressed if I read something it's like that. It's 70 pages. Yeah. But, uh, yeah well, it's in, well, you know the book, right? But for our, sure, our listeners, yeah. <clears throat> this was the uh, former editor, I want to say it was L or Vogue magazine of Europe, and he became locked in from a brainstem problem and then proceeded to write a book about his experiences with a speech pathologist. And it's unclear if she just wrote it all or if he would, really was giving her the cues with, with just lateral eye movements. Yeah. And I read, it's only 70 pages, of course, because how long could it be? And I've actually given this book to many people, uh, including my own, uh, my, my wife's uh, patriarchal head of their family when he had horrible EMT cancer, was no longer able to speak. He became mute, of course. And that, you know, it's, it's not, of course, the same as being locked in, but it has some parallels, if you will. Um, so, we, you know, we deliver bad news a lot, or, we, you know, we are the purveyor, or not purveyor, we're the, the, the uh, messenger of bad news often. How does, how does one do that? I always thought that in, you know, okay, I'll backtrack a little bit. So I was very young, and I always looked at these, these people uh, who graduated college early and why medical schools don't want really young people, maybe because they're not as ready to deal with death and real life issues, right? So if you finish medical school in India at the age of 19, I don't know that you're prepared to have a conversation about someone dying. You know, you haven't really experienced that much. So now we've got residents, they're, they're starting at 25, 26 years old, and maybe they're an intern and th- th- they run into the first person they've got to go get the really bad news to, let's say trauma patient, right? I'm sure you see the residents come to you and say, you know, Dr. Bark, you know, I, I had a bad call night. You know, how would you have handled this? Well, I think it's um, there's more attention paid to that now in medical school than there used to be. So I think some of them have actually had some formal training in it. Uh, in my generation, we had zero training in that. No, no matter what you went into, you were just expected to learn that on the job. And as a fellow, I had to do that several times a week. I had to tell people their diagnosis was glioblastoma. And even though the community surgeon had told them that the whole tumor had been removed, that that didn't mean that they were cured, and that the reason they were sent to us was to arrange for radiation and chemotherapy and what they could reasonably expect to get out of that, why those treatments were still a good idea, even though they might not keep you alive even for very long, even even every single patient. So. Uh, in the oncology world, I go to a lot of general oncology meetings like ASCO, and they have the equivalent of practical courses in giving bad news. Really? So Yes. So there is a, a training program that you can go to. There's a facilitator. 
Sometimes there are role-playing exercises, and they, they give you a, a, a little thing that goes in your pocket that gives you a one, two, three way to deliver really bad news to patients. You're kidding, like a, not, like a little guide, like a little I'm index card? I'm totally serious, a little <laughs> index card. And, and um, if you look in the, in the medical literature, as I did once, I was thinking about writing a review article about how to deliver bad news because I thought residents and, and even some younger staff members or people who don't do it very often might, might benefit from it. And there are articles in the medical literature for, uh, for dentists on how to give bad news. So if you discover an oral cancer, for dermatologists, if you see somebody on the, on the subway who has a, a melanoma, how, you know, how do you broach really bad news to people? And we do it all the time. And yet when I looked into it at the time, there was absolutely nothing for neurosurgeons. And I, I mm. think that may still be true today. So when you do it in the context of, say, delivering a glioblastoma diagnosis, I, I try to bring the residents with me, uh, each one at least once, to talk about the diagnosis of glioblastoma, at least with the family in the, in the family waiting area. And it's, of course, even that much harder uh, with the patient. But you, know, you, you, you start out by saying, what, what have you already heard about the way things are going? Uh, you know, what's your understanding of the situation? And then uh, you say, well, are you the kind of person who wants to know everything about this? Or do you just want sort of a, a brief overview of it and not to get into the details? And then you kind of divulge the bad news. And then there are some, I mean, it's, it's almost crass to talk about them as, as uh, tricks, but that's what they are, you, you know. If you have a patient, and you don't very often, who's uh, crying uncontrollably, you have to have tissues in the room to offer them. You have to have cut off the telephone to the room so that you don't get paged. You have, your pager has to be silent. Your cell phone has to be silent so that you're not interrupted by something. And uh, if, the, if the tissues won't help, then you have to get up and go out and get them a glass of water. And that works every time. So. You know, the, these ways of sort of making it better uh, seem very mechanical, but they actually work. They're, they're actually considerate things to do to people. Because yeah, a lot of times people don't even hear what you're saying after that, right? They well, there, there needs to be more than one person on their side of the conversation when you do this. Yeah. The absolute worst way to do it is in the recovery room. It's, there are randomized trials where they've given women breast cancer diagnoses in the recovery room or on the floor with their family. And you, you actually do lasting damage with news like that. If you give why it, is that? You know, because you're alone, there's nobody there, you can't, oh, you know, you can't, and you don't remember much of what's said to you after that first blow falls, and then you're expected to uh, follow up on plans, you know. I mean, the close of a, of a human conversation usually revolves around making plans for the next step. You know, when's the right. next time we're going to talk, or what we're going to do is we're going to set you up with radiation. And if you have a, a patient there by themselves, they're never going to remember any of that. So it's like the, the productive part of the interaction is lost. You know, that what, so after the bad news, of course, you, you want to clarify what it is that you're going to do to make things better, to, you know, as, as much better as you can. We're going to give radiation. We're going to give chemotherapy. We're going to try to uh, maintain a quality of life that you think is, uh, you know, what's the best we can do and that we hope will be good for you um, for as long as possible. Now, just for our mm -hmm. listeners, I just want to focus on the fact that for a minute that we're asking Fred these very difficult 
questions on this very difficult topic, not because he has worse outcomes or more you know, exposure to this. I mean, we as neurosurgeons are constantly exposed to this. And I remember Julius Goodman, the late Julius Goodman, who ran the oral boards course that now Alan Levy runs. And when he, if I recall correctly, when he was diagnosed, he didn't get a, even a biopsy, right? He didn't do anything, chemo, radiation. He said, I know what this is. And he walked off into the sunset in a way, I, you know, to do the things he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And he didn't have any children, I don't think, either, right? So it was, it was in some ways simpler, in some other ways harder, maybe. Um, and I still admire his courage and sort of just facing yeah. it that way. Well, that's a valid personal choice. But, but as you say, in people who are married and who have kids, that, that choice is very rare. And, right. and that's part of why people with cancer who are married live longer. Uh, they, their diagnoses turn up earlier because their spouse notices there's something wrong with them and bugs them into go to the physician and get it checked out. They make more aggressive treatment choices, uh, even when they, those choices may not be curative. And uh, they have more support at home than somebody who's not married. So that's an example of the influence of social factors on, on disease biology. So what do you think motivated Charlie Wilson, I don't know if you ever had this conversation with him when he was still alive, what motivated him to devote so much resource to malignant tumors, right? He did all kinds of tumors, but particularly yeah. malignant tumors, right? Yeah, well, in those days, um, that was the big, uh, that was like Mount Everest. You know, you wanted to cure glioblastoma just, just like we do today. Uh, it seems less satisfying to cure anything but the hardest. Many neurosurgeons sort of tackle life as like, what's the hardest thing? And that's, that's what they want to do. And um, he told me that when he was part of the original brain tumor study group, you, you think of him as sort of a master technical surgeon, but he was one of the first handful of people to um, design and conduct randomized clinical trials in neurosurgery. If you look back at the original trials done by the brain tumor study group uh, with Michael Walker from NCI back in the 70s, every author on those papers is a neurosurgeon. Mm, I see. There, okay. there was no such thing as a neuro-oncologist. General oncologists had no interest in, in brain tumors. Because it was so lethal. Yeah, it was the worst, like pancreas, only not even, you know, in yeah. the body. It was, and, and um, so all of the people studying it, you, you don't think of Charlie Wilson as a randomized trialist for chemotherapy, but they did all the trials that showed the value of radiation and, and mm. BCNU chemotherapy uh, long before any other group. And um, he told me that it was in those days, which was the 70s, when he was founding the Brain Tumor uh, Center at, at uh, UCSF, that none of them had any question that if you could just get enough chemotherapy in, you could cure glioblastoma. And that was so, the motivation for Gliadel and uh, Henry well, Brim. that was that? Henry, but also all the blood-brain barrier breakdown uh-huh. uh, stuff that Ed Newelt was doing. And he said that they, they, it never occurred to them that it was not just a question of getting enough drug into the tumor. And it was only as they developed more and more ways to get more and more drug into the tumor that it became clear that that was not going to be the answer. Mm-hmm. And, and there have been a number of sort of fashions in neuro-oncology where people think, well, if we could just get this one thing solved, uh, we'll cure glioblastoma. And so far, none of them have really proven to be the, uh, the last step. Every year, overall, survival does get better. In Charlie Wilson's day, it would have been about six months, and nowadays it's, it's pushing two years. But that's still a lot shorter than people yeah. that age have a right to expect. So I want to wrap up by asking you a very 
complicated question, um, but very personal as well. And I really, uh, if, you, if people haven't read Eben Alexander's work, uh, which is very controversial, or even Paul Calanthe's widow's writings, right, or Paul, Paul's writings, um, you know, spirituality. So you're at this nexus, as you said, twice a week in Charlie's practice, now still regularly, with life and death. As a spine surgeon, I fortunately encounter that very seldom, right? So I know very little about this now. What, how, what do you, what's the place for spirituality in all this, for your patients and for you? Well, Charlie Wilson used to, I saw him give a talk once, and I wish I had a recording of the talk. It was a, a talk to a patient group, a brain tumor support patient group. And so the audience was entirely patients. And um, he talked about a lot of pretty deep matters, and of course it's hard to remember the whole thing. But one, one thing that he said was that in his own life he had uh, focused on uh, what is it that, that you can do? So as a, as a patient, what can you do to make your own life better? You, know, you can choose the right treatments. You, you can't choose not to have the disease, which is what all of us would really mm -hmm. like to be able to do. That's out of your control. And so he said, just, just try to let go of that and, um, and focus on the things that really truly are under your control, making your own time better, extending it as long as it's worth extending uh, to you personally. And that's different decision for each patient. And I think that uh, as a physician, you have to uh, support those decisions, even if it's something as radical as saying, I don't want any treatment at all, um, mm -hmm. which uh, I think is disappointing for us as physicians to have what we can offer turned down in that way. But if that's what's right for the patient, you have to sort of honor it. And then you have to, uh, the last thing about giving bad news is, is not to give an impression that you are going to abandon the patient. So if you're no longer going to try to cure the patient, it doesn't just mean that they don't have to come back and see you and, and that the relationship is over uh, necessarily. It, it may be better uh, for, it to, for you to pass it on, but, but you're just entering the next phase of care, which is to focus on improving quality of life for as long as possible. And uh, people really don't want to be abandoned in the context of bad news. They want to know there's going to be somebody there with them uh, who's continuing to fight on their behalf and support them. Great. Well, thank you for your time today. We're going to have to have you back on to talk about some other topics, but, uh, but that was really enlightening. Thank All you. right. Well, thank you, Matt.